John, Kansas Governor Laura Kelly says it's dumber than ever not to expand Medicaid. Well, let's check out what those smarter states are doing, David. That would mean roaming to Wyoming. Welcome to Care Talk, America's best home for incisive debate about healthcare, business, and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. So, John, it's 2021. Let's talk about Medicaid expansion. Oh, haven't we already covered this, David? I thought all of what, I mean, what's the status of, of Medicaid expansion? I mean, this is how many years post the ACA? Isn't this old news? Well, John, it is. It's, it's like almost like it's not even news. It's like a history lesson now because it's from 2010, the Affordable Care Act. Some of our listeners weren't alive then. Uh, but, <laughs> but you know, as part of the um, Affordable Care Act, the expanded coverage. And one of the things was just to make it so that people could get Medicaid, which is the program, comprehensive uh, health care insurance for the poor. Oh, so finally, you're going to start explaining what we talk about. I mean, remember, Medicaid is different from Medicare. Medicare is what you qualify as a senior citizen for, um, to, so that you can get all of your stuff for free, or at least that's what you and my mother seem to think. And, and, uh, Medicaid is the state federal program historically set up, uh, for the poor and, and in some cases the disabled. Um, and, and I thought the ACA fixed this, David. Well, John, it did. But as you recall, uh, after the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010, there was all manner of attempts to undermine it. And the Supreme Court sort of surprisingly said, hey, you can't have the expansion of Medicaid be automatic. You can't force the states to do that. So the states then decided, oh, some of the states that were just trying to undermine the Affordable Care Act overall just said, well, we won't take the Medicaid expansion, even though the feds were paying for essentially the whole thing. I think I think the way it worked was... I mean, and the hard part about defending healthcare and any healthcare change is we have a patchwork set of programs. We've got commercial insurance for the privately insured. We've got Medicare for the elderly, and we've got Medicaid already in some portion in pretty much every state of the union. I believe it's in every. I think I think either Arizona or Nevada is holding out uh, for many many years. But even they are, are sort of part of the federal program, and it's partially funded by the states, partially by the feds. And so that creates the opportunity for the states to create mischief. Um, but what's what's happened with the Medicaid? Because the goal, I believe, was to sort of gap the coverage between the people who were traditionally covered at a state level for Medicaid and those that would qualify for the exchanges. What's happened with that Medicaid expansion, which is effectively a federal investment in providing coverage for those who were between the level of, of qualifying for the exchange with a job or being so poor they would be on traditional Medicaid? Well, John, the story is that, uh, you know, as you mentioned it, the Medicaid is, is a, a federal state partnership program. It's, it's usually been roughly 50-50 funded by the states and funded by the federal government. So it is a very high um, expense for the states. Now, the expansion population uh, was paid for essentially completely by the feds. Now, what's happened is that 38 states expanded Medicaid, 12 still haven't expanded it, leaving about 2 million people in that coverage gap between uh, Medicaid and the exchanges. What's happened now that's different and why we're talking about it now, other than that we ran out of other things to talk about and we couldn't get any guests to join us, is that COVID has shown the importance 
of universal coverage. And also- Oh, stop. You don't think universal coverage was, was something we had to do before COVID? I mean, please. John, I think what happened before is people would say, hey, uh, my neighbor, I don't want him to get a freebie. You know, I don't want to get free stuff, free insurance. But now it's like, my neighbor might have COVID and maybe I do care that he can go get tested rather than saying I can't afford it and, you know, end up spreading COVID all over the place. So that's one of the things that happened, John. And then in the pandemic relief bills, the federal government has basically, you know, made it even almost essentially profitable for the states to take the Medicaid um, expansion. So that's changing the calculus, so to speak. So I think, what is it? There's a, a five, it was going to be a, a match to the states and now there's a 5% boost. I mean, they're they're almost adding a bonus for those states that uh, that are going to expand, and and I and I think one of the things that that you've skipped over in your cursory coverage of this is that the results from the Medicaid expansion or that federal investment in greater coverage have actually been 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 quite it's been quite successful. Uh, the uh, coverage obviously is provided; people can go to get their primary care, they can go to get that COVID test. But um, I think what, what, what it's shown is there's been no negative impact on people going out for jobs. There's been actually Medicaid costs on a per member per month basis are actually rising at a slower rate for those states with Medicaid expansion than those that have not expanded. And I think it's also been a, a help to the states with this Medicaid expansion to reduce costs in other areas. I mean, I, so David, what are all those friends of yours in red states doing that they are they're, they're pushing back on what seems to be a be a tails I win heads I win proposition to expand Medicaid? So John, I would, I would like to tell you a couple of things. So one is my favorite place is, is Missouri for this purpose, and you know, sorry to all the wonderful folks in Missouri, but I think it's called the Show Me State now. I would advise not moving there if you're going to be poor, John, because you know what it takes? If you want Medicaid as a family of three, you have to make under 21% of the federal poverty level. That is under $5,400 per per year for a family of three. Now, the good folks of Missouri actually went to the polls and they approved a constitutional amendment to expand coverage and have Medicaid expansion. But People the- voted for it. They wanted it. And I'm sure the the Republican leaders in this red state have quickly followed to support the majority that has voted for. Is that is that what's happened? Well, John, there you go wrong. Okay, because so the the chair of the budget committee uh, in Missouri said the federal government has no money. Uh, but then, and there's another rep who said, "quote Even though my constituents voted for this lie, I'm going to protect them from this lie." I'm, I'm I'm losing track of which lie it was. John was that <laughs> you know, but th- this actually passed by that six percentage point, so it wasn't even very close. Um, but they're just desperate to keep it keep it out. So I you you go figure, John. Well, my favorite, my favorite for those states that won't do it. I mean, at the point at which you're at a hundred percent and adding a bonus, effectively, what's happening is those states that aren't expanding are paying for the privilege of denying coverage. I mean, it, it, it's extraordinary. Well, John, in Kansas, the uh, the, the Democratic governor in, in, in what is more or less a Republican state, and she said it was, quote, dumber than ever 
not to expand Medicaid. And what they're doing there, talking about dumber than ever, is they're going to say, well, let's actually legalize marijuana to help pay for it. And it, it almost got, it actually almost passed in 2020, but there was a legislator who wanted to tie an anti-abortion bill uh, into it. So it I, I thought you were just excited about the legalization of pot there, David. But the thing that I think is frustrating is the Medicaid expansion, not just because it's a low cost, I mean, no cost alternative for these states, some of whom have a lot of poor people, uh, but medic healthcare inflation is slower and by by a material amount. You know, I believe that those states without Medicaid expansion or have their Medicaid budgets, the cost of the state growing at nearly 7%, and those that do have Medicaid expansion growing at 4.4%. The the lie that um, people are not motivated to get jobs if they get Medicaid health care coverage um, was was turned around when you when in that Oregon study where they looked at people who had won the lottery for the limited slots in Medicaid. They looked at the folks who got on Medicaid coverage and those who didn't, and they sort of pursued and succeeded at getting jobs at about the same rate. And you see health other costs for the state budget, whether it's mental health or incarceration, um, other things that fall that that, that break down um, when you don't have uh, health care coverage in place. Um, this is a this is this is a winner, and, and you're even starting to see states like Wyoming uh, in, in voters and uh, legislators actually support it. Well, John, one of the things that now that we're 10 years past the Affordable uh, Care Act and when many states expanded Medicaid is that there's over 400 uh, peer-reviewed studies about Medicaid expansion and they show it works. Um, and you know, to sum it up in, in some of the different areas, one is that it's, it expands access to care, things like checkups, preventive care, mental health care, health outcomes in terms of lives saved, the financial security. I mean, don't forget, it's not just about being able to go and visit the doctor. It's about not having a huge uh, debt and having medical bankruptcy um, and just a big drop in uncompensated care. So it's fairer also to those to those provider uh, organizations. It's also, you know, Medicaid funds um, long-term care. And it's definitely led to an increase in access to long-term care among lower-income middle-aged adults who may need it. You know, I think it's interesting, David. I mean, this is, is such an all- topic positive. It's kind of hard to understand why states don't do it. And you're starting to understand as you go through the facts as to why many red states are voting for it. I don't believe that for, I, I believe it's been put up for uh, a vote in a number of states. I don't think the Medicaid expansion has ever lost when it's been put to a vote at a statewide level. The The thing that I think re remains a problem is Medicaid coverage gets demonized uh, by many of your red state friends, as being a program for the poor, an expansion of government, when it really is fixing a hole in the private marketplace. It's it's really Medicaid completion. It's making sure those poor people who should qualify for coverage get it. To be fair, John, you know you can see that there there is this idea about yeah the government government overreach. People don't like that. Um, you've seen some states try to tie in work requirements. So it sounds like on the surface, hey, if you want something for free, you should at least go out and get a job and not be uh, you know, one of uh, Ronald Reagan's welfare queens that are just out there, you know, collecting their Medicaid uh, benefits. It turns out those uh, requirements just put a lot of new bureaucracy and hurdles in place. And maybe they make it so it's more palatable to support if you're really 
on the uh, you know on the conservative or right wing side, but it doesn't actually get more people into the workforce, and it decreases access because it creates too high hurdles for people that actually need coverage, and we're not going to be able to work anyway, like someone taking care of a new baby. You know, the, the, whole, the whole work requirements thing has been excessively studied um, for thirty or forty years, and it is never proven to be either either a, anything other than a disincentive to enroll in the program. And it certainly has been, has not been successful as an incentive for work. But there's a lot behind this, David, as we start to build this bridge to complete the, the promise of coverage for more, if not coverage for all, with the social benefits. You're going to see Medicaid continue to, I think, evolve. I mean, one of the most exciting things we see at CareCentrics in this particular stage is whether it's money follows the person, meaning you can get paid to take care of people at home as opposed to in nursing homes or institutions, or whether it's support for home health care workers and, and unskilled and skilled workers in the community, or the fact that Medicaid and Medicare, uh, not just in managed care, but even through fee-for-service, are starting to support and gap those social determinants problems, food, hunger, transportation, uh, food and hunger, transportation, um, some of the, the housing issues that also drive healthcare costs when they're not addressed. John, we started off this podcast looking back 10 years to Medicaid expansion studying under the Affordable Care Act. And now you're looking forward and seeing where Medicaid could go. You know, in the um, presidential election in 2020 in the, on the Democratic side, uh, there was talk about Medicare for all. Now, I think that we haven't heard much of that lately. I think that where things may go is kind of a, a Medicaid for all as a basic coverage. So it's kind of a fallback for anybody, and then you can buy additional coverage if you want on top of that, or you can be covered. But that, that I think, is a more logical starting place. Frankly, Medicaid is a lot more comprehensive in, in what it covers than other forms of health insurance and already builds in a number, a number of things to address some of these social determinants of health uh, that you speak about. So it is a kind of a modern program in that sense, that it's more holistic. Uh, some people don't like it on the provider side because it doesn't pay as well uh, as Medicare or commercial. But in terms of being comprehensive, it's actually a better program. I think what you might see is manage Medicaid for all or manage Medicare for all. I mean, one of the challenges is these programs are rapidly changing and the, the, the politicization of the terms, whether it's CAID or CARE, um, and the fact that they're kind of technical terms, it might have been Maybe we call it, I mean, just to be innovative here, kind of David care for the poor, uh, uh, and, and, and we could kind of turn that into a managed care program. And not as many people are going to demonize David care as, as, as they will Medicaid. <laughs> John, I love the name. You know, I'm sure my mother will be happy to hear it since she picked that name out uh, as well. I'll have to think of something clever as it relates to your name. I think our names aren't weird enough to have- uh, Nobody- but don't you think that part of this is the demonization of government? And if we could just call it something else, it would be harder to just demonize and attack. I see. I thought you were going with like David Care or Goliath Care. I'll stick with Goliath Care. In any case, that's it for yet another edition of Care Talk. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. If you liked what you heard or you didn't, please subscribe, give us feedback. We'd love to hear it. Thanks for listening.